if you'll allow me one quick personal thing, page 6E of the morning news today is a picture because they're going to film a movie called 12 Mighty Orphans. And if you look at the picture of the team, number 18 has the football in his lap. And that's Julie's daddy. Um, the 12 Mighty Orphans was a Masonic home in Fort Worth. And Mike Russell, who attends here, the guy that sometimes comes barefoot and with, no, with also no shoes and shorts and long gray hair, his grandfather is Rusty Russell. So that is a movie that we will have major connections with. But page 6E, it's a lot of fun. Julie's dad played on that team of orphans, and it shaped his life, and it's a part of our family history. So Julie will be signing autographs after the service, um, and um, it's just a lot of fun. I, I read a little bit of four newspapers almost every day. I have I've subscribed to the paper edition of the Wall Street Journal because it's ironically one of the cheaper papers, and then I can get real inexpensively uh, uh, online editions of the Dallas Morning News, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And I, I don't read them all. I wouldn't come to work if I did. That'd be all day, right? But it's just helpful for me to know what's going on, but also no different perspectives. But something has happened in recent years that has blown my mind. I don't know if you've done this, but if you don't just read an article, but then read the comments under the article, have you done that lately? It's frightening. It's frightening. Something has happened in our society. An absence of civility is one of the ways it's described. But, but there, is, there is vitriol spoken publicly in a way that I have never seen in my lifetime. And I'm old. I know because my grandchildren tell me I am. I said to my grandchildren one time, but you know, I'm old. I'm old as dirt. And one of my granddaughters said, no, Bubba, some dirt's older than you are. Um, <laughs> I've never seen anything like what we're seeing today as it results to the vitriol in public debate over anything. I mean, anything, any kind of article, it takes off with the comments. People ripping each other to shreds. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's one thing to go after Aggies and Sooners, but I mean, this is real stuff that, that, that you would be shocked that, that people are speaking to the way they are to each other. It, it's truly amazing. What's going on? In fact, the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, I think, had at least three articles that addressed this very problem. The one I like most was on the front page of the Saturday Wall Street Journal. It talks about Google uh, under the parent company Alphabet, which has been famous for their free discussions of opinions with message boards and all kinds of electronic arguments. They have now banned that because the name-calling and vitriol has gotten so bad that it's beginning to tear their, their company apart. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? An article related to the New York Times written by another uh, um, outlet said that the New York Times has found that because of these comments online, it is affecting their editorial policy. It's literally chasing them even farther to the left because of all the vitriol they have. Whereas they used to just have to pacify advertisers, now there is this crazy attitude out there and many of us want to blame the media but frankly what I'm convinced of is the media is only reflecting us we are a society that has become this way it's crazy out there people are bad their division is unbelievable in all kinds of areas and you just think what's, what's happened to us 
What's happened to us? Well, let me tell you something else. I fear it's entering not here. I fear it's entering the body of Christ, the evangelical church in America. One way I know that is because churches are becoming more homogenous. In other words, you can think about a church and you instantly know what age group it is or what race it is or what political philosophy that characterizes it, right? Why is that? Because we can't even worship our Lord and Savior with people that think differently than us. It's it's hard enough to cross generational boundaries and worship together. It's hard enough to cross racial boundaries and worship together. I'm convinced that maybe the hardest boundary to cross is with people who disagree with us, for crying out loud. And it's, it's hurting our very mission. So today I want to look at what what do we do when we disagree? It's going to be quick. I have a commitment that I may well make everyone here angry. But my calling is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) I used to have a a thing on on my credenza on my desk that said, um, what was it? Disappointing someone every day. Today I'm going to, and most pastors would see it and say, oh, you're an optimist, just one. Um, With a little bit of effort, I hope to disappoint all of you by the time this is over. So turn it with me, if you will, to the book of Proverbs. We're going to start in the book of Proverbs and, and, and first address the danger of dissension, the problem with quarreling, the problem with this kind of division. Proverbs 6, beginning with verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. These are things God Almighty hates. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, dishonesty, hands that shed innocent blood, abuse of the weak, a heart that devises wicked schemes, thick feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. And look at that last one. A man who stirs up dissension among brothers. People that divide the body of Christ are in the same category as murderers, liars. If we're going to understand this, we've got to gain the heart of God about it. Proverbs 17, verse 19. He who loves a quarrel loves sin. Wow. He who loves a quarrel loves sin. He who builds a high gate invites destruction. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. How does Scripture view quarreling? It's foolish. We have become a nation of fools. Lest you think I'm only getting this from the Old Testament, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13, you, my brothers, by the way, I'm in, using the old NIV, and it's always my brothers or man. It's, these are places where it should be men and women. Men and women can, women can quarrel too, right? Um, I don't want the women to be feel left out. Um, 
You are, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Because the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Do you realize we oftentimes about the, talk about the New Testament church as if it was heaven? It wasn't. 1 Corinthians is full of issues about dissension. Those who say, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. There was division in the church then. There's division in the Galatian church. There was division throughout the body of Christ because wherever there are humans, there's the potential for division. But notice how God views this kind of division where there's quarreling and strife. Uh, in other words, disagreements that are characterized by anger, disagreements that are characterized by pride, disagreements that are characterized by a desire to win, disagreements by, that are characterized by division. Okay? God hates it. God hates it. But the reality is division has become a part of our families. It's become part of our churches. It's become a part of our society. We are a people that no longer have the ability to get along with people that disagree with us. Billy Graham's wife once said, if a husband and wife always agree, one of them's not necessary. The reality is that disagreement's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's healthy to be around Christians to have different views. You know what? You might learn something from them. I know that's crazy. And certainly they'll learn things from you. But, but the Scripture makes it clear that among believers, among believers, it should be characterized by self-sacrificing love. So does that mean we can never disagree? You know, some of us are conflict avoidant, and, and our idea of spirituality is where there's never any tension or conflict in the room. You may be married to one of those. Um, what, what you learn from that kind of person is they, they avoid the conflict all the time, which means they always win, right? Because you never bring it out in the open and discuss it. That, that is not necessarily spiritual as either. But, but I want you to see that, that a desire, a gravitation toward conflict is not characterized by the qualities that God expects of his people. So I want to show you this by taking you two biblical examples. The Apostle Paul was not afraid of conflict. The, the reality is he was the ultimate in task-oriented leaders. Uh, the Apostle Paul was used by God to literally work miracles and, uh, humanly speaking, of spreading the gospel all around the Western world. He was an amazing man, but he was not afraid of conflict. So, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I think we can learn something from Paul's conflicts. Verse 36. Paul and Barnabas had gone on the first missionary journey, and they had been used by God to plant churches in Asia Minor. And, and verse 36, it picks it up. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they were doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. Um, Barnabas is the people-oriented leader. 
When Paul first came to Christ and all of the Jerusalem church was scared to death of Paul because of the the suffering he had inflicted on the church, it was Barnabas who went to him and said, no, we can trust him. I've seen God work in his life. He was a man who loved. John Mark was a young, probably a bit of a knucklehead. I mean that with all due respect. Uh, A cousin of Barnabas's, so he knew him and knew his potential. And that potential, by the way, would include writing the second gospel. And Barnabas wanted to take him on the second missionary journey. But the apostle Paul, verse 38, didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in their first missionary journey in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. In fact, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and went on in what's called the second missionary journey. What can we learn from this? Good people will disagree. Good people will disagree. Even in the body of Christ, good people will disagree over all kinds of things. But which one of them was wrong? See, we get into arguments and we see it as a zero-sum game. One has to win, one has to lose. One has to be right, the other has to be wrong. I'll submit to you they were both right. Because Barnabas was right that Mark was worth the investment. And as a, as a, as a lover, that motivation is what drove Barnabas to take Mark with him. But Paul was right that in the kind of trip that the second missionary journey was going to be, John Mark would have been a liability. And so it was wise for him not to take Silas. I mean to John Mark, but instead take Silas. So what can we learn from that? Oftentimes, the people with whom we disagree have good reasons. Do you hear me? They have good reasons. Oftentimes, there are positive Values that we share that they disagree over. What's the problem? We're so defensive, we're so angry, we're so proud, we're so insecure. Whatever the reason is, you fill in the blank, that we're afraid of taking the time to hear what motivates them and why they believe that way. It's huge. It's huge. But we get so locked into why we hold our position, we're not able to hear them to hear why this other position matters to them. And and Peter and Paul had them, I mean, and Barnabas had the maturity to disagree, to take different paths, but still respect each other. Why do I say that? Trust me on this. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul says, are Barnabas and I only ones that have to work for a living? He still refers to Barnabas as an equal in the spread of the gospel later on in 1 Corinthians. And in Colossians 4.10, he says, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus, Aristarchus, great name, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And you've received instructions about him. If he comes, you should welcome him. Uh, In other words, Barnabas was right about Mark. He was value, and Paul was a big enough man to admit it. In other words, you have a disagreement here. It's not the end of the world. In fact, both of them have good reasons, and both of them turn their positions into positive for the cause of Christ. 
We've lost that. Now Galatians. It's one thing to argue with Barnabas. Paul even argued with the first pope, Peter. Okay, I said that facetiously. We're Protestant. Are y'all with me here? Blink every once in a while. Do something. I'm dying up here. When Julie and I visited African-American churches, my favorite was the lady who said, help him, Lord Jesus, help him, help him. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Did you get that? See, some of you are saying, I agree with you completely, Andy. We shouldn't have divisions. We should all agree. And you want to avoid having different opinions. You think everybody should agree with you. But the reality is some things are so important we have to be willing to have the discussion to decide what's right or wrong. When, when you agree about everything, you make nothing important. But the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important that the Apostle Paul was willing to take on Peter publicly to tell him he was wrong. Now, I believe that the book of Galatians was written, okay, all the seminary people listen to me. I take a South Galatian position here. Did you all have to write that paper for Harold Honer? I take a South Galatian position, which means the book of Galatians was written prior to the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15, because I think that makes more sense. Because remember in Acts chapter 15, the apostle Paul goes to the apostles in Jerusalem and says, do Gentiles have to conform to the Jewish law? And James, the brother of Christ, and Peter and the other apostles all agree that they don't, only that they should abstain from immorality and not eat food filled with blood. Remember that? I think this occurred before that. Because look what it says. Before certain men, verse 12 came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. It's amazing what can cause us to take the positions we have. Sometimes it's peer pressure. I'm staggered by the number of pastors who are changing their theology because of what the press says. Peer pressure is an incredibly powerful thing. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's pride. There are all kinds of reasons that we take the positions we do. When they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that they, by their hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentile to follow Jewish customs? Some things are so important, we dare not disagree about them. We dare not overcome the discomfort of sitting and talking about it. Some things are so important, most especially the gospel, that we are willing to speak to them, to address them, because they have to be addressed. 
And for those of you who are so conflict avoidant, you never want to bring up those issues by being unwilling to confront certain issues, you make a statement they don't matter. But some things do matter. And some of the issues that divide us, that make us very uncomfortable, they matter. Um, Race relations are broken in America right now. I I survived the civil rights movement. I I, I was in race riots in high school, but I've never seen what I've seen today. It's different. It's, It's hurting. It's harmful. That's something that matters. We've got to address it. Um... Our, our political system is just flat broken right now. We can't, we can't reach a compromise in, in Washington for anything. And you know why? Because we, the voters don't let them. There's so much division in every area of our life that in many ways our society is coming to a standstill. Even businesses like Google have realized that the division has seeped so deeply into their culture that they're not getting work done anymore. In other words, this kind of thing becomes a cancer, and I would argue that in many ways, it's not the media, it's not the politicians, it's not those highly visible leaders who are leading us in that way. They are responding to who we are, and we have become a people that are divided and angry and fearful and and broken in our relationships. God help us. God help us. So what do we do with this? I'm going to take you to an unlikely place, Leviticus, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Leviticus, chapter 19. Jesus read it. Verse 15, don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Notice that in Scripture there is a commitment to what is true. What is true. Not what is politically expedient, not to what will gain you the most friends, but what is true. Truth and love always work together because God is both truth and love. Verse 16, don't go about spreading slander among people. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, you should not murder, but I tell you that if, if, if you call your brother a fool, you've already murdered him in your heart. People think that the Sermon on the Mount is something new. Jesus had it rooted in the Old Testament. He said, guys, you have focused just on the appearances of evil. I'm telling you what I care about, what God cares about, is the heart of the matter. And if you hate people, you've already murdered them. The fact that you haven't pulled a trigger doesn't mean anything. We have become a society where hatred is permeating everything. Listen to the way we talk about each other. God help us. Read the comments. But rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you won't share in his guilt. There is a place for having honest communication with someone with whom you disagree. 
But notice what comes next. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, because I am the Lord. How do you disagree with someone the way you want to be disagreed with? You ever thought about that? How do you want to be disagreed with? You want to, I don't know about you, let me tell you how I feel about being disagreed with. I don't mind being disagreed with, I'm disagreed with all the time. I want people to give me the benefit of the doubt that I'm not evil, that I don't have evil intentions, that I'm trying. I want to be treated with respect just as I have an obligation to treat other people with respect. I want to be listened to, not told what I think or why I think it, but given the chance to explain why I think what I think. Isn't that what it means? Isn't that what you want? Isn't that the way you want to be treated? Well, if you're going to disagree with someone, why wouldn't you disagree with them the way you want to be disagreed with? Right? Thank you. (laughs) Unless you think I'm only reading Leviticus, 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you, verse 8. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Sympathy, harmony, humility, compassion. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. You know how hard it is to forgive people when they're wrong? My dad had a friend who was a car mechanic. His best friend was a car mechanic. And, and when someone made him mad, he said, I'm going to take them off in a corner and think bad thoughts about them. And that's funny on one level because we think, well, that doesn't do him any harm. But that's what we do all the time, right? We hold grudges. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and whoever would want to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't know about you, I don't want God against me. It's one of my first rules of life. Be on the same team as God. Verse 8 of chapter 4, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. What would the body of Christ be if we loved each other so deeply we could disagree? If our churches weren't made of everybody looking the same or voting the same and feeling the same, but if we, we had the integrity of love to love people through disagreement, what would that be? Do you know, Francis Schaeffer's little booklet, he wrote a, f- a famous book called The Church in the End of the 20th Century, and there was an appendix on the back of it called uh, The Mark of the Christian. And he quotes from two verses in John chapter 13 and John 17. I read them in high school, which is significant because my senior year in high school we had race riots. 
And in it, he, he points out that Jesus says two things. By, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And then the next one, he even raises it more. He says, by this shall all men know that the Father has sent me by your love for one another. And Francis Shaver makes the point that Jesus gave the world the right to judge whether he is the son of God based on how well we love each other. And men and women, people are not coming to Jesus because we aren't proving he's the son of God because we don't love each other. We in the body of Christ are called to be different. We are called to demonstrate a love that is self-sacrificing and humble and willing to walk with people with whom we disagree, that is willing to reach across all kinds of chasms and say, by the love of Jesus, who loved me even though I shook my fists in disobedience to him, who loved me even though I was dead in my trespasses and sin, who loved me even though my heart was evil, who loved me enough to die on the cross for the sins of the world, if he, the Son of God, will die on the cross for the sins of the world, then maybe, just maybe, you and I can love each other and show the world that Jesus really is different. Because our world is desperately in need of seeing that kind of love. Our families are broken, our schools are broken. Our politics are broken. Our cities are broken. You look across, every way you read, we're broken. And we could be different. We could be different. Real quickly, let me give you some suggestions. First of all, we are called to make unity and love control even our disagreements. Unity and love should control even our disagreements. That's true in marriages, it's true with our children, it's true in our church, it's true in our society. Secondly, we should distinguish between what is important and what is not. I can love Aggies and Sooners. It's just not important. Because <laughs> we don't play the Aggies. And Now, the week of the game during fair... I may struggle a little, but it's just not important. We need to speak with humility and not pride. Seek to persuade and instruct rather than to judge. We've lost the great art of persuasion. When you come into a conversation and start by calling people names, let me tell you what happens. They stop listening. If you come into a conversation with a heart of instructing and persuading, and listening, it's amazing what can happen. And we need to build trust before confrontation. We need to build trust before confrontation. When you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you read that list of, of um, love is patient, love is kind, you read through that whole list and you realize if we do that, people would trust us. And in the context of trust, it's much easier to disagree, right? Can we be different? By the power of Jesus Christ, can we be different? Can we show the world what Jesus would look like 
in the midst of all of this? Can we be different? Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we just like disagreeing. And sometimes we're confused when people disagree on something that seems so obvious to us. And sometimes we're hurt, sometimes we're angry, sometimes we're fearful. But there's no fear in love. Teach us what it is to love, to disagree in peace, and show the world what your love looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.